Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. Must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, June 2nd, 2023, the 863rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's get started today with a little social media news, a little censorship news. We had a minor scandal yesterday that turned itself into a great piece of marketing and advertising for our great friends over at the Daily Wire, you know, fighting the good fight, letting America know, hey, everybody, we figured out who has a wee-wee, who has a hoo-ha. You must listen to us about everything, especially COVID, stolen elections, Ukraine, the insurrection, and you absolutely must listen to us when we say just get the vaccine dopes. 
you know, everything we're wrong about. But you trust us on that because you know that we're the ones who stand at the vanguard of saying, we know who has a wee-wee, we know who has a hoo-ha. So Matt Walsh, one of the experts on who has weenies and who has hoo-has, produced a movie last year called What is a Woman? And it is probably a valuable piece of content. I'm not insulting that piece of content. And it's good that that content exists. I'm happy Matt Walsh made it. I don't think it justifies a lifetime obsession in the trans issue or the ongoing imaginarily ultimate importance of this issue rising above all others when it is nowhere close to the most important issue. But again, it's good that people are learning about the issue. What is a woman is informative and helpful. I'm all for it. Now, the problem is that yesterday, Twitter very briefly made it harder to share posts about what is a woman. The one year anniversary of the release of that movie was being celebrated by the people at the Daily Wire. And Twitter decided to limit the spread of this documentary movie on Twitter. And immediately the whole world began to melt down. We were told that that was rampant censorship. And by the way, it is censorship. I don't like it. Somebody at Twitter took it upon themselves to suppress the sharing of Matt Walsh's movie. That is bad. That should not happen. There's no justification for it whatsoever. But it's worth noting that these people only go crazy about censorship when it affects them directly. And considering that they all get paid about a million dollars a week to lie to the American public, I can't imagine that the regime is actually going hard on them. Regardless, there should be no censorship. And Elon Musk's free speech platform is nowhere close to being a free speech platform. This is a minor example of the censorship on Twitter, but there are still plenty of people who are not allowed back on that platform. And there's all sorts of suppression and manipulation that happens to the accounts of people like me and many others who were banned for years and are now back and are dealing with the same stuff that we're told was bad when the government was demanding it from Twitter 1.0. We just pretend that Twitter 2.0 doesn't have these problems, even though it absolutely does. So since that initial outbreak of conservative incorporated rage protecting the Daily Wire from being mildly suppressed on Twitter, Elon Musk has sprung to action. He said yesterday that it was a mistake made by many people at Twitter. And then today he took it upon himself to share and quote tweet the movie itself, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Now, as Elon mentioned, this wasn't only a problem out in the Twitter verse and at the Daily Wire and for people who care about censorship issues. This was a problem inside Twitter. And by the end of the day, Twitter's head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth's old job, had resigned. The communist propaganda account Occupy Democrats breaks the situation down actually kind of well if you strip out all the ridiculous bias in their story. They write, Twitter owner Elon Musk is hit with more devastating news as Twitter's trust and safety chief, who is in charge of moderating hateful content, resigns in disgust over Elon Musk's latest shockingly transphobic move. 
the whole thing started when Elon Musk invited his transphobic friend, Matt Walsh, to host his deeply offensive What is a Woman documentary, which is riddled with transphobic attacks and disinformation on Twitter as part of a new deal that Twitter just signed with far-right news organization The Daily Wire. Then, Twitter trust and safety chief Ella Irwin and her content moderation team examined the video and decided to override Musk and block Walsh from hosting the video on Twitter. Then, instead of supporting the decision of Twitter's content moderators, Elon Musk publicly threw them under the bus, declaring, quote, this was a mistake by many people at Twitter. This caused trust and safety chief Ella Irwin to immediately resign, citing Musk's shocking defense of a hateful transphobic video. And then Occupy Democrat says, please RT and smash the like if you think that Elon Musk is doing a terrible job as Twitter CEO. And consider joining the growing exodus to Tribal, a new Twitter competitor that is exploding in popularity because Elon Musk banned Tribal's Twitter account. But he forgot to ban this link to download the new Tribal app. Ooh, sounds so dangerous. How did he forget to ban that link? I guess he just keeps forgetting to ban it, even though they keep reminding him. NBC News writes up the situation Like this, the headline is Twitter trust and safety chief Ella Irwin resigns. Irwin, who confirmed her resignation to Reuters on Thursday, served for roughly seven months and declined to provide a reason for her decision. Irwin ran the Twitter team that fought disinformation, removed offensive content and helped maintain Twitter's platform integrity. But Twitter has experienced significant challenges in stemming offensive and abusive content under Irwin's tenure and since Musk began serving as CEO. Now, that isn't really true. They keep reporting that that's true. They do little studies and say that the use of certain words has skyrocketed by this or that percentage, and it's supposed to then be a very big deal to everybody, but it really isn't a big deal and it really isn't happening. This whole narrative is made up about how Twitter is just this den of hate speech now. Musk had previously said, for example, that fighting child sex abuse material or CSAM was priority number one for the platform. Reporting from NBC News and CNBC in January found that illegal content was still freely circulating on the platform. Isn't that amazing? They knew right where to look for the child sexual abuse material. Now, there have been plenty of reports over time that Elon Musk has focused on that stuff and that a lot of it has been removed. Perhaps not all of it. There might still be all of that out there. It's strange that the mainstream media is now using this to go after Elon Musk when it was the regime that they are constantly protecting who had all of this child sexual abuse material on there in the first place. And it's only made worse by the fact that Twitter was obviously working hand in hand with government agencies to remove legitimate political speech from American citizens But they did not have throughout that same time the same focus on removing child sexual abuse material. So it's odd to see them hitting Elon Musk for that. Irwin's departure comes at a turbulent time for the social media network, which was grappling with the dissemination of a conservative website's purported documentary on transgender people. So according to NBC News, what is a woman is only a purported documentary. It might not actually be a documentary, according to NBC News. They're like, sure, 
Daily Wire will call it a documentary, but is it a documentary? We'll let you decide. Well, okay, yeah. According to every possible definition of documentary, it is, in fact, a documentary, not a purported documentary. Now, I think I know what they might be doing here, and it is a problem that has infected the minds of mostly millennials, and it's this. Millennials are obsessed with watching documentaries on streaming platforms, Netflix documentaries, YouTube documentaries, Amazon documentaries, wherever the documentary comes from, HBO documentaries, CNN documentaries. They don't care. They want more documentaries all the time because they believe that documentaries are 100% true and they constantly think that they are learning amazing new things about the world while the regime tricks them into believing only wrong things, essentially. Now, there are honest documentaries out there and very good documentarians in the world, but those documentaries and those people are the ones who are censored, not the ones who are advertised on HBO and CNN and Netflix and Amazon and YouTube, etc., etc., etc. There are people in this country who think that because it is a documentary, it must be all true. And that has to be the thought that this writer at NBC News is playing on. They're trying to say this doesn't count as a real documentary because the things in it aren't true. Whereas all the documentaries you guys watch on Netflix, those are 100% true. And just a tangent for a second, by the way, I watched HBO's limited series, five episodes called The White House Plumbers. It's Woody Harrelson playing Howard Hunt and Justin Thoreau playing Gordon Liddy. And it's about how the two of them botched all of these various attempts to undermine Richard Nixon's political competition leading up to and including the incident at the Watergate Hotel. Now, we know a lot of that situation was a CIA takedown of Nixon. What HBO did was present the entire thing as Liddy and Howard Hunt setting up this botched operation to help Nixon at Nixon's behest. Liddy was a Nazi enthusiast. Howard Hunt was just kind of a dummy with an anger problem. They're just these big, dumb, evil, overbearing anti-communists who can't get anything right. They think that they're saving America from the Democratic Party and communism. And what they're really doing is just destroying our democracy. At the end of the series, after they have already implied that Howard Hunt was responsible for his wife's plane crash, they write with the where are they now kind of wrap up. Hey, this part was fiction, but here's the reality part. Howard Hunt served two and a half years in a minimum security prison. On his deathbed, he may or may not have confessed to the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> well, that's amazing. So Howard Hunt, the CIA guy, was the guy that killed Kennedy. And now he's doing all this stuff that ends up taking down Nixon. But he was doing it for Nixon. That's the thing. Gordon Liddy served only four and a half years in prison after his sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter. Now, why in the world... 
would Jimmy Carter be commuting the sentence of this Nazi loving political criminal? It was a very odd show, to say the least. It was actually, to tell you the truth, pretty well acted and very funny. Just the politics are a complete mess in it, as you might imagine. You might remember last year, HBO released a documentary on Alexei Navalny, who is presented as the young, hip, cool guy who's Vladimir Putin's arch nemesis. HBO presented him as a hero and the target of a Putin assassination plot. And now they have a scripted series about reality winner, the NSA translator who was arrested in 2017 on suspicion of leaking an intelligence report about Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. She's going to be played by the young actress Sydney Sweeney, who's kind of known as the hot girl from HBO's Euphoria. So just a peek at how our entertainment complex tries to retcon and rewrite history. Retcon, by the way, means retroactive continuity. It's basically like they go back into the story with what they're showing you now. They change something from how you view the past story that you've seen before. They're like, oh, it wasn't really like that. It's actually like this now. So we're just going to pretend that this is the way things are. This is what's being done with your history and your perception of the world in real time all the time. The goal is to detach people from reality and then change the information that makes up their world, the way we understand our world. It's a constant manipulation. And considering that a great portion of the American general public doesn't spend nearly as much time on news and social issues, political issues, etc., as people like me do and probably people like you do. Their knowledge of these situations is going to primarily be based on what they see on HBO and, as I was saying, what they see on documentaries that they believe must be true because they're documentaries. Like scripted television, scripted movies, those are obviously fiction. We can tell they're fiction, but documentaries are real. Just like, you know, the news is real. So Matt Walsh released a purported documentary. We're not sure if it counts as a documentary yet because it just contains so much disinformation that it does not rise to the level of documentary, even though it fits the definition of documentary in every possible way. But back to NBC News. Twitter's trust and safety team, the unit that Irwin ran until earlier this week, would have had responsibility for limiting the spread of the post. Irwin's predecessor, Yoel Roth, quit just two weeks into Musk's ownership. Musk, who has owned Twitter since October 2022, has described himself as a champion of free speech, calling the tagging a mistake. But as of Friday, had not lifted the visibility limitations. The dissemination of explicit, violent or hateful content on social media networks has been of significant concern to lawmakers, regulators, advocacy groups and the public. Now, there isn't any of that in Matt Walsh's documentary. Again, I don't agree with the Daily Wire people about anything. I think that they're all liars, cucks and traitors, but it doesn't mean that they can't do any good work. And again, this is good work. It's fine work. There's nothing hateful. And there's certainly nothing violent or explicit about what's being presented. 
it's important because it lets people know the system that is trying to attract their children and a system that is involving itself in creating the future of our nation. People really do need to understand that it is a system. There's a profit motive there and there are agenda goals there. There is a world they're trying to create through the transgender agenda. Concern over undesirable content, including racially or sexually offensive material, sparked an advertiser flight shortly after Musk acquired Twitter. He's taken steps since then to stem the tide and court advertisers, including the hiring of former NBC Universal ad executive Linda Yaccarino as CEO. So it's a bit hard to know what we have here. We get an attempted suppression so obvious that there's no way the whole platform wouldn't have known about it. And we get a massive response, including from Elon Musk, who has now shared the video, the, the documentary video. And in the wake of this, we lose not just one, but two people from the part of Twitter that handles censorship. There's not only the head of trust and safety, Ella Irwin, there's also a man named A.J. Brown, who was the head of brand safety and ad quality. He has announced today that he is resigning as well. And maybe it's all related to this. Maybe they are very sad that this video is going to be shared. They can't imagine working for a speech platform that would allow speech. It's just not acceptable. You cannot make documentaries telling anyone that part of the trans agenda is not the loveliest thing that's ever happened. Now, if all this was marketing for the Daily Wire and for what is a woman, then it was a very effective marketing campaign. This got more eyes on that project than just about anything else that could have happened. Certainly, there was not going to be some viral media hit coming from the one year anniversary of the release of this movie. That just was not going to happen. And now, Everybody knows about it. This is what we're going to do for Pride Month because now it's Pride Month and we're supposed to care about that. So this is about the best advertising they could have ever possibly gotten. And perhaps that's what this is. There's something very off about this. Within 24 hours, this video comes up kind of irrelevant. It was already out in the world. Like this is not an initial round of censorship on this content. This content has been out there. This content has been on Twitter. So it's very strange to apply censorship to it a year into this content existing. So it's odd that it happened, but it did happen. And then we get the resignations. Now this is a big story. It's in the public's consciousness and it makes people think, oh, Twitter might not be a free speech platform. And then Elon Musk rushes right in to save everything. No, no. Twitter is a free speech platform. See these two people resign. I reversed their decision. Now they're resigning. Those are the people responsible for the censorship. Now they're gone. I fixed the censorship problem on this whole. What is a woman thing? And look again, I have this free speech platform, except there's still a lot of people who are banned. There's still rampant shadow banning. There are search bans. People can type my full screen name into Twitter and not find my profile. I can search for my own tweets and not find them. 
So there is still an extraordinary level of censorship and manipulation on that platform. But now everybody who pays attention to Con Inc. Media, all the villagers in the uniparty right believe that problem is over. Twitter is the place for free speech. And we're going to run into problems with this again, just like in 2020. It's going to be coming from a different angle. I've been talking about this, watching, first of all, the Ron DeSantis thing. But also, we are going to see an effort. I talked about this on Devolution Power Hour the other night, and I've talked about it on Twitter before. But we are going to see an effort from COVID doctors who we imagine are on the side of the good. And that effort will be specifically anti-Trump because they want to tag Trump for the vaccine stuff and they want to blame him for the vaccine stuff. They want the responsibility for all of that to be shifted onto Donald Trump and his supporters. That is all in service of protecting the regime. Who's going to be involved with it? Well, Jay Bhattacharya already is. And no offense to Jay Bhattacharya and his medical work. I mean, there are some people out there who did important work during COVID, and I'm not trying to slight them for that. But we are going to see them go well outside the bounds of their expertise, and they are going to be doing a very specific thing. You'll see him. You'll see Scott Atlas, who is already associated with the DeSantis campaign, as Bhattacharya is. You will see guys like Robert Malone. And I think the list is going to go on and on and on. And we are going to see the same problem that we have seen countless times in the last few years. People who don't think things all the way through very often end up in some form of hero worship with people who kind of just came out of nowhere and said the thing that they wanted to hear. Now, I'm not trying to say any of these people are terrible people at this point, but Robert Malone was involved in the creation of MRNA. He said he got it himself for some reason. How in the world did that happen? We're talking about people connected to the DOD and defense intelligence. We know the vaccine was a Defense Department project. We know a lot of this was a Defense Department project. There are interests within pharma and within the defense industry that must be protected. And when I say must be protected, must be protected against Donald Trump. So don't be surprised when this anti-COVID, anti-Trump effort expands to include COVID doctors that you have come to trust and like. It's on the way. And we have other good news in the social media sphere. This is brand new today from Axios. YouTube reverses misinformation policy to allow U.S. election denialism. In a reversal of its election integrity policy, YouTube will leave up content that says fraud, errors, or glitches occurred in the 2020 presidential election and other U.S. elections, the company confirmed to Axios Friday. YouTube established the policy in December 2020 after enough states had certified the 2020 election results. Now the company said in a statement, leaving the policy in place may have the effect of, quote, curtailing political speech without meaningfully reducing the risk of violence or other real world harm, end quote. So the idea here is that YouTube and Google and Alphabet, the parent company, censored speech about election fraud because they were trying to prevent violence and other real world harm. That was it. That was what they were trying to prevent. People can't talk about the 
obviously stolen elections, stolen in broad daylight, because if they do, it's going to cause violence and other real world harm. And they knew that in December of 2020, before we even had the very violent insurrection. And then, of course, the very violent insurrection was used as a justification of all those policies. But wait a second. If it didn't stop the very violent insurrection, then why would it stop violence or real world harm generally? Also, that principle is fundamentally flawed. You cannot just go out and censor the truth on the idea that it might prevent real world harm. Censoring truth is already a real world harm and look where it has gotten us. I do love this, especially though, because now YouTube creators don't have the excuse where they can say, oh, I don't talk about it just because YouTube's going to kick me off. I'm just looking out for my platform. First of all, you're all pussies. If you're afraid to talk about the most important issues in our society because of your platform, then you don't deserve a platform and you're probably going to lose it sooner or later anyway, especially once no one trusts you anymore. Two years, tens of thousands of video removals and one election cycle later, we recognized it was time to reevaluate the effects of this policy in today's changed landscape. YouTube said in a statement, tens of thousands of video removals, and they say it as though they're proud of it. With that in mind, and with 2024 campaigns well underway, we will stop removing content that advances false claims that widespread fraud, errors, or glitches occurred in the 2020 and other past U.S. presidential elections. You really got to wonder what their angle here is, especially because those claims are not false. Asked how YouTube was specifically able to make that determination, a spokesperson pointed Axios to their statement. YouTube said that it, quote, carefully deliberated this change, end quote, but didn't provide further examples of what factors or instances it considered when weighing its decision. The platform said it will provide more details about its approach to the 2024 election in the months to come. The policy, which will take effect Friday, doesn't change YouTube's other misinformation rules, quote. The rest of our election misinformation policies remain in place, including those that disallow content aiming to mislead voters about the time, place, means or eligibility requirements for voting. False claims that could materially discourage voting, including those disputing the validity of voting by mail and content that encourages others to interfere with the democratic processes. So apparently we're not allowed to say anything bad about mail-in voting, even though mail-in voting is widely known to be the method of voting most vulnerable to fraud. Media companies and tech platforms are wrestling with how to balance curbing misinformation with freedom of speech ahead of the 2024 election. Here's how to balance it. Stop pretending you're going to curb misinformation. Because you can't even define misinformation. And every time you define it and label misinformation, the thing you labeled misinformation turns out to be true. Finding the right balance has so far proven difficult. Former President Donald Trump and other elected officials have made election denialism a key tenant of their political platforms ahead of the 2024 election. And congratulations, Axios, for not understanding the difference between the words tenant, which is 
someone who lives at a property and tenant, which is a belief or principle. Election denialism does not have a place at Trump Tower. Election denialism is not a key tenant of any political platform. CNN, for example, received widespread criticism for its town hall interview with Trump last month. Trump repeatedly pushed unproven conspiracies about the 2020 election being rigged during the event, despite the moderator's best attempts to fact check him in real time. And you gotta love how they have changed from baseless conspiracies to unproven conspiracies. We may have actually graduated. We haven't quite proven our conspiracies, but they are no longer baseless. Hey, congratulations, everybody. So we will see how this goes, but this could be very interesting. If people are allowed to talk about election fraud on YouTube, maybe that means that people like us don't get banned from YouTube. And if Badlands starts streaming to YouTube, hey, man, who knows? Could be a whole new world. But the real question is why they are making this move and why now? You would think that they would want censorship in its maximum capacity going into the election cycle next year. So is Google unable to make this decision for themselves? Are they being forced to do this by some government or through some legal means? Are they concerned about lawsuits, perhaps for their censorship? And you kind of got to wonder if this has anything to do with Ken Paxton down in Texas going after them and then the Texas Rhino GOP trying to take out Ken Paxton through this impeachment that happened last weekend. You have the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana going after the government and the tech organizations for their coordination on censorship. It's possible that the heat is just being turned up on all of the tech platforms when it comes to their censorship and about this subject in particular. It's also possible that events are simply getting out of hand and them continuing to censor would be just obviously making them complicit in the problem as the public understands that the elections really were stolen. We've seen now over 60% for a really long time in terms of the percentage of Americans who understand that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, and they very likely understand that cheating affects the outcomes of virtually all elections. Evidence continues to pour out in Arizona. People on tape adjusting the machines outside of the law, and those same machines just don't work on election day. At some point, there is just going to be too much evidence out there in public. If a court makes a decision agreeing with Carrie Lake that she won her election for governor last fall and that Katie Hobbs is illegitimate, well, that's going to cause big problems. And the problems in Arizona's elections last fall existed in 2020 as well. We are getting to the point where some of this is becoming unavoidable. And at that point, what do platforms do? They at least had some cover two years ago, two and a half years ago. The media figures were out there saying, no, Trump's crazy. All this is a conspiracy theory. We've debunked this. We've debunked this. Look at our fact check. Look at our fact check. 
That all provided cover for these social media companies. And it provided cover for all the villagers out there who just didn't want to look at the problem. They were sick and tired of everything. They had been dealing with COVID, dealing with BLM. They just wanted it all to stop. And they were told, if you let us take this away from Trump and replace Donald Trump with this old deranged pervert, everything is going to go back to normal. And you will have your life back. That's what you want, isn't it? So just believe us. Don't say anything. I know that everybody saw this election happen in broad daylight. Oh, and also in the middle of the night, they woke up in the morning and the results of the election were totally different than when they went to bed. The little spike on the graph that no one could ever forget. The 81 million real lawful American votes. We're told Joe Biden was able to procure from his basement when he couldn't even get 10 people to show up at his events. He literally had an event with zero people in Arizona. He used to draw those little circles on the ground for people to sit in saying it was social distancing. Remember his car rallies where every car at the rally was a Jeep Wrangler and they sure took up a lot of space, man. They would just pile right in there to see Joe and Barack. The Joe and Barack show able to attract 18 or 20 people every time. Donald Trump has 20,000 or 30,000 or 40,000 or 50,000. But Joe and Barack, they can get 18 or 20 people to drive down in somebody else's Jeep Wrangler. And oh, the honking they will do. At some point, all of this becomes undeniable. It has always been leading to that point ever since November 3rd, 2020. There was no way they were ever going to get away with this because there was no way that anyone was going to stop pursuing it. And the evidence is so obvious and so overwhelming that at some point, even those who would deny the usurpation of their own country, despite it happening right in front of their eyes multiple times over and over and over again, at some point, all those people have to admit it, too. And then at that point, they will pretend that they were on board the whole time, that they knew it the whole time. And of course, the rest of them will go insane. But this is a major policy shift, and it is a signal on where the control exists in the Google YouTube organizational structure, or perhaps even outside that there could be outside forces causing this again. People don't think about this, but there are lawsuits that have been proceeding for two years, two and a half years, sometimes even longer. Donald Trump never conceded. This situation is not by any means settled. And there is going to be, I think, massive liability on all of the organizations and people worldwide who went along with the theft of the 2020 presidential election. When you're seeking accountability the right way, it takes a long time. There's no fast solution to it. And that sucks and it's frustrating and it feels like injustice and it is injustice until justice is served. But that doesn't mean that things aren't getting done and we aren't getting closer. And this to me signals that we are. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been tracking the new releases of information regarding Jeffrey Epstein and his calendars and schedule books and all of the people linked to him, the people he was supposed to be having meetings with. We've talked about people like William Burns, the current CIA director, a deputy secretary of state under Barack Obama, 
Catherine Rumler, who was known as Barack Obama's fixer. She now works at Goldman Sachs. Ariane de Rothschild, the banker. We have Bill Gates and Microsoft, of course. We are told that the big bad blackmail Jeffrey Epstein had over him was that Bill Gates had an affair with a young bridge player. So scandalous. And probably not remotely the worst blackmail Epstein had on him. We heard about Larry Page from Google. We heard about Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn. We had MIT. We had Harvard. We even had Noam Chomsky. And we've had some more Epstein news this week. The Wall Street Journal has been rolling this story out, usually on Sundays, a rare Wednesday article this week for the Wall Street Journal Jeffrey Epstein info op that is obviously running. They could just release all the information at once. That's not what they're doing. They're dripping it out. These are not new revelations they're reporting. They're revelations that they are reporting along a timeline. Jamie Dimon says he never discussed Jeffrey Epstein's accounts at J.P. Morgan. Jess Staley says Dimon did. A former top J.P. Morgan Chase executive said in legal documents that For years, he communicated with CEO Jamie Dimon about the bank's business with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, setting the stage for a conflict with his former boss, who maintains he had no such conversations. Jess Staley's statements, made in documents viewed by the Wall Street Journal that haven't been made public, are his first remarks to emerge about conversations between him and Dimon regarding Epstein. The bank on Tuesday said Staley's statements are false. The documents are part of the discovery process for a legal fight over J.P. Morgan's connections to Epstein. In the documents, Staley said that Diamond communicated with him when Epstein was arrested in 2006 and in 2008 when Epstein pleaded guilty. Staley also said that Diamond communicated with him various times about whether to maintain Epstein as a client through 2012. Epstein was accused of sexually abusing girls in 2006 and pleaded guilty in 2008 to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He subsequently spent time in a Florida jail and registered as a sex offender. Diamond was deposed Friday. The CEO maintained he has no recollection of ever discussing or reviewing Epstein's accounts, a J.P. Morgan spokeswoman said. Diamond doesn't believe such conversations with Staley ever happened, the spokeswoman added. There is no evidence that any such communications ever occurred, nothing in the voluminous number of documents reviewed, and nothing in the nearly dozen depositions taken, including that of our own CEO, said the spokeswoman. The one person who claims this to be true is currently accused of horrific acts and dishonesty. The article goes on to give a bunch of the backstory and then adds, in August 2008, a few weeks after Epstein's guilty plea, a J.P. Morgan employee sent an email that suggested Diamond would review the Epstein relationship, according to the U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit. The email states, quote, I would count Epstein's assets as a probable outflow for 08, 120 million or so, as I can't imagine it will stay pending Diamond review, end quote. The bank has said there is no record of such a review and that Diamond doesn't recall one. Epstein had one meeting scheduled with both Diamond and Staley on March 2nd, 2010, according to documents viewed by the journal. The J.P. Morgan spokeswoman said that the meeting wasn't on Diamond's calendar and that Diamond didn't attend. 
Epstein remained a client of J.P. Morgan after his guilty plea, and top executives continued to meet with Epstein as J.P. Morgan's compliance department pressured the bank to drop Epstein, the journal has reported. J.P. Morgan said it cut off Epstein's accounts in 2013, shortly after Staley left the bank, but five years after he was, you know, convicted for soliciting a minor to prostitution. Now, there's another really strange Epstein headline this week, yesterday in the Daily Mail. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein called himself a coward and sent a letter to fellow convicted pedophile Dr. Larry Nasser in the final days before he killed himself. Shocking new records reveal. In the weeks leading up to his death by suicide, billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein reached out to another disgraced abuser, Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics team doctor convicted of sexually abusing scores of athletes. The letter is part of newly uncovered records from Epstein's stay at the Metropolitan Correctional Center after his July 2019 arrest on federal sex trafficking charges. They come just days after Daily Mail released its own uncovered Epstein files, a vast trove of his private calendars and emails, which detailed the billionaire's connections to Chris Rock, Peter Thiel, and Richard Branson, among many others. The article also mentions David Blaine, Irina Shake, Wendy Murdoch, the former wife of Rupert Murdoch, Richard Branson, Tommy Matola, the former Sony Music executive who was married to Mariah Carey. Just a bunch more big names that the public is now learning are connected to Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein's letter to Nasser was found returned to sender in the jail's mailroom weeks after Epstein's death. It appeared he mailed it out and it was returned back to him. The investigator who found the letter told a prison official by email, I'm not sure if I should open it or should we hand it over to anyone? The records depict an Epstein in the corner of his Manhattan jail cell with his hands over his ears, desperate to muffle the sound of a toilet that wouldn't stop running. Epstein was agitated and unable to sleep, jail officials observed. He called himself a coward and complained he was struggling to adapt to life behind bars. His life of luxury reduced to a concrete and steel cage. The disgraced financier was under psychological observation at the time for a suicide attempt just days earlier that left his neck bruised and scraped. It's crazy. They knew he was suicidal and they just left him on guard and turned the cameras off. <laughs> I mean, what is any of this, honestly? Yet even after a 31-hour stint on Suicide Watch, Epstein insisted he wasn't suicidal, telling a jail psychologist he had a wonderful life and would be crazy to end it. On August 10th, 2019, Epstein was dead. Nearly four years later, the AP obtained more than 4,000 pages of documents related to Epstein's death from the Federal Bureau of Prisons under the Freedom of Information Act. They include a detailed psychological reconstruction of the events leading to Epstein's suicide, as well as his health history, internal agency reports, emails, memos, and other records. The records include notice that Epstein had mailed Nasser, who lost his final appeal to quash his 40-year sexual sentence in July 2022. I don't know what a 40-year sexual sentence is. 
after lawyers said the convicted molester was treated unfairly by a judge who called him a monster while handing down the ruling. And the Daily Mail article takes another three or four days to read. So we're not going to do that on this podcast. And the truth is, I probably would have gotten distracted by all the celebrity coverage on the side of the page. And I would have ended up on a story about some real housewives frolicking on the beach in front of paparazzi in Ibiza. But this is one of those stories that just makes you say, what in the world do they want us to believe? Epstein wrote a letter to Larry Nasser that he sent out. It got returned back to the sender at the prison and they found it after his death. And this is what we have now. Epstein's communication to Larry Nasser. Now, I have absolutely no idea what to make of this. I mean, it's like we're supposed to understand that of course, convicted pedophiles know one another. Well, that doesn't really make sense unless it does totally make sense because they're connected. Now, I don't know if they are connected. This is not much to go on. It is a very, very strange piece to a very, very strange puzzle. And it seems so out of place right now that you have to expect something else is going to be coming out about this. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Larry Nasser's name again. Otherwise, this is just very strange. It's always worth noting when something doesn't quite seem to fit and they're just like expecting us to get it. There's almost nothing about this letter in this article from the Daily Mail. The, the article is probably three or four thousand words long, like all of the backstory, all of the side stories, all of it. They're presenting the rest of the official story about the Jeffrey Epstein thing as it exists right now. And they do go into some interesting coverage of his situation at the jail leading up to his suicide. Not that you can just take any of that at face value at all, but it's a whole lot of words just to tell the public that Jeffrey Epstein tried to contact Larry Nasser. Now, I mentioned before that the CIA director, William Burns, was directly connected to Jeffrey Epstein during his time as Deputy Secretary of State under Barack Obama. Now, it remains to be seen how significant his role was in everything Epstein, but he is the CIA director right now. So being connected to Jeffrey Epstein at all is at least some cause for concern because who knows how that sort of thing affects a man in Burns's position handling events for the United States of America, or so we're told, on the world stage. This is Financial Times this morning. CIA chief made secret visit to China in bid to thaw relations. Now, Zero Hedge had an interesting tweet on Monday talking about how China had declined a meeting with the purported <laughs> defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, and that the Pentagon was concerned with China's decision. We know that the illegitimate President Joe Biden and members of his illegitimate administration, like the fake Secretary of State Antony Blinken, have been getting pretty regularly dissed by other countries. Other countries are not interested in talking to them. They're not interested in negotiations. They really don't want the fake administration as part of any deal. They routinely get punked on the world stage. So 
Now, apparently, they're just resorting to handling their high-level meetings in secret. CIA Director Bill Burns made a trip to China last month, a clandestine visit by one of President Joe Biden's most trusted officials that signals how concerned the White House had become about deteriorating relations between Beijing and Washington. Now, wait a second. Why are they telling us that Joe Biden's CIA director is one of his most trusted officials? He was the deputy secretary of state under Obama. Now he is in Joe Biden's administration. Joe Biden cannot think in complete sentences. He just fell over again in front of the world yesterday, said it was a sandbag. First, it was airplane stairs and wind that knocks Joe Biden over. Then it was a bicycle. Now it's a sandbag. But one thing it's not is Joe Biden. It is very, very strange to hear, though, that Bill Burns, the CIA director, is one of Joe Biden's most trusted officials. Five people familiar with the situation said Burns, a former top diplomat who is frequently entrusted with delicate overseas missions, traveled to China for talks with officials. You might remember when he had a delicate overseas mission down to Brazil to help them fortify their election. The visit, the most senior to China by a Biden administration official, terrible sentence, comes as Washington pushes for high level engagements with Beijing to try to stabilize the relationship. Now, how in the world can their relationship be so destabilized? I mean, China has Joe Biden completely compromised and under control, right? I mean, the CCP has all of their former dealings with Joe Biden, you can know about them just by reading the report on the Biden laptop by Marco Polo, or at this point, countless news articles about Joe Biden's compromise, his shady foreign dealings with China. How is it that that relationship is unstable? You would think that Joe Biden does not have leverage over China, so it's not on China's end. The instability must be on Biden's end. It seems like Bill Burns is going there to be like, hey, please, please, will you be nicer to Joe? The CIA and the White House declined to comment. But one U.S. official said Burns met Chinese intelligence officials during the trip. Last month, Director Burns traveled to Beijing, where he met with Chinese counterparts and emphasized the importance of maintaining open lines of communications in intelligence channels, said the U.S. official. And you might remember last year as the whole Russia-Ukraine debacle was just beginning. Joe Biden handed over all of the U.S. intelligence on Ukraine and Five Eyes, as you might guess, to China, who then handed it to Russia. So you'd think that their intelligence cooperation was working just fine. Burns' mission took place in the same month U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met Wang Yi, China's top foreign policy official in Vienna. The White House did not announce that meeting until it had concluded. Burns' trip was also the highest level visit to China by a U.S. official since Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman went to Tianjin in July 2021. Now, you might remember Wendy Sherman's name because a couple of weeks ago we talked about how she was planning to retire. She is basically taking the hit on the whole sky circle issue. She providing some cover for Anthony Blinken, and she is a longtime 
State Department fixture under regime administrations, Clinton, Obama, etc. She worked on the Iran nuclear deal. She's worked on North Korea, Russia, and China. Each and every one of those countries now presents enormous problems for the regime. Apparently, Wendy Sherman's job just wasn't done well enough over these many decades. But back to the Financial Times. Biden has on several occasions asked the CIA director to conduct delicate missions at home and overseas. Burns traveled to Moscow in November 2021 to warn Russian officials not to invade Ukraine. Oops. Several people familiar with the situation said Biden last year sent Burns to Capitol Hill in an effort to persuade then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi not to travel to Taiwan. Again, oops. Biden only sends Burns on missions he wants to be sure will fail. What's going on here? The White House has been trying to kickstart exchanges with China after a particularly turbulent period that started in February when a suspected Chinese spy balloon flew over North America. The incident derailed an effort to set a floor under the relationship that Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping had agreed was necessary when they met at the G20 in Bali in November. Biden last month said he expected an imminent thaw in relations without providing any detail. Burns traveled to China before Biden made the comment at a G7 summit in Hiroshima. So Biden believed that Burns was going to go over there, exert some sort of leverage over Xi Jinping, and then relations between the illegitimate Biden administration and Xi Jinping would then thaw. Paul Hanley, a former top White House China official, said one advantage of sending Burns was that he was respected by Democrats and Republicans and also well known to Chinese officials. Oh, Democrats and Republicans, the Uniparty, both sides of the Uniparty like Bill Burns, who is just randomly, I guess, connected to Jeffrey Epstein. While Burns is widely viewed as one of the most trusted figures in the U.S. government, his trip continues a tradition of CIA directors being used for sensitive missions. We are being told by global media that the CIA director is one of the most trusted figures in U.S. government. Why would they be telling us that? And what kind of person would believe that? And also, if it happens to be true, what kind of government are we dealing with? The CIA director is about as secretive as they come, right? Everybody else is supposed to be transparent. I mean, not that the CIA is like actually part of the American government. It's not like they're accountable to the people or anything. But what does it say that the CIA director is the most trusted? No one even expects transparency or honesty from him. The U.S. has been trying to resurrect a trip to China that Secretary of State Antony Blinken abruptly canceled over the balloon incident. But Beijing has so far refused to give it a green light. Gotta love how they're still pretending that Blinken was exercising leverage in that situation as the sky circle just casually floated across the country. Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu has also refused to meet U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Singapore this weekend because Washington has refused to lift sanctions on him. And finally, from the world of totally botched foreign relations by the illegitimate administration, 
Wall Street Journal this morning, real peace for Ukraine requires more military support, Blinken says. The Biden administration's chief diplomat made a case for giving priority to military support over statecraft to help Ukraine prevail over Russia amid concerns that Western funding for Kiev could wane at a critical point in the war. In a speech in Finland, a Russian neighbor, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Russian President Vladimir Putin wasn't ready to negotiate a pact that restores Ukrainian territory and distanced Washington from efforts to bring about peace without Russia at the table. Precisely because we have no illusions about Putin's aspirations, we believe the prerequisite for meaningful diplomacy and real peace is a stronger Ukraine capable of deterring and defending against any future aggression, Blinken said Friday. The emphasis on arming Ukraine comes as Blinken and officials from other countries seek to prevent Western support for the war from flagging due to budgetary concerns or political changes in the U.S. and Europe. Doesn't matter how much it costs. It doesn't matter how many leaders are removed. All that matters is that the money keeps flowing. Western military supplies and training have been vital in helping Kiev blunt Russia's ground advances, shore up air defenses, and prepare for an expected counteroffensive. Future battlefield successes for Ukraine will be critical for sustaining military support from Washington, U.S. officials have said. They want to stay forever, no matter how long it takes, no matter how much money it takes, no matter how many people die. It's like a brand new Afghanistan, except this time they really care about the actual land of Ukraine. Some people in the regime might even consider it their ancestral homeland. So we had a couple of episodes this week that were all about one subject. I know we're a little behind on the current events and the news. I hope you will forgive me for that. I wanted to update some of that today. I hope you all have an absolutely wonderful weekend in store. I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!